1: catch up on COVID with the head of the Department of Biology and Director of the Human Research Institute at Maynootha University, Professor Paul Moyner. Good afternoon, Paul.
0: Good afternoon, Jerry.
1: Thanks so much for taking our call again today. Look, I, I want to begin on the vaccine front, if I may, and this uh, Sinovac biotech in Beijing trial where we're hearing news that a vaccine has tested positively on monkeys.
0: Yeah, that's right, Jerry. So there's currently um, there's really intense activity in the, the vaccines and looking for vaccine candidates. So there's probably over 70 vaccine candidates at the moment being evaluated at various stages. I think six of them are currently in trials. Sinovac is a company in uh, China. It is one of the companies that has actually started trials and already the vaccine has uh, gone into humans. They released data last week. It was the first data I've actually seen for the vaccine that's currently in humans, they tested it out in a number of animal models, including uh, macaque uh, monkeys. So what they did was they basically give this vaccine; they injected it a number of times, and then three weeks later, they exposed the monkeys to the SARS coronavirus two, and the mice were protected. So that's very encouraging. That would suggest that at least the vaccine is conferring some protection. Now, normally those studies, Jerry, would be done over a much longer time frame in terms of assessing how long the protection would last for but I guess it's sort of it indicates um, how we're trying to condense um, evaluation processes that would normally take months and years and trying to condense them into the shortest possible period but nonetheless it is very encouraging Jerry, that you know the vaccine does show protection.
1: So it's in humans. I, I saw that by extension after they had success yep. in mice and monkeys, they've moved into humans and it's been trialed there at the moment. Are you concerned w- w- with the truncating of the process in this instance?
0: I think some of them. so. So, for example, there's another uh, company uh, in conjunction with the University in Oxford and, and the Jenner Institute in Oxford. Uh, they've also already gone into humans. And they've come out, like last week, with um, indications that they hope if everything goes well, that they could have a vaccine by September, October, which, again, seemed very, very um, mm. confident, very bullish. Um, now, having said that, what they're, they're using a technology that they've previously used to generate other vaccines. So a lot of the toxicology work or making sure that it was safe, a lot of that work would have already been done. So I think with all of these technologies, if the technologies are already out there and are known to be safe, that can absolutely reduce some of the evaluation uh, time and even some of the other trials on the antivirals. The reason why they've um, started so quickly is because some of these drugs are already licensed so all of the toxicology and safety work is already done. So it's just maybe a repurposing of the drug. So it allows you to test out very quickly if we're going to show any promising effects in terms of treating the virus.
1: So so that's on, on the drug front. So it's, as we said before, it's a, a two pronged approach. Vaccine on the one hand, antiviral drugs that have been used in other instances. Are they developing new ones as well, Paul, at this stage?
0: Yeah, so just ask, before going on to new ones, Jerry, so they're trying a number of uh, antivirals. Um, one uh, antiviral that's received a lot of attention is Remdesivir. It's uh, by this company called Gilead. Uh, they started um, studies maybe about six to eight weeks ago. The first data was due to come out at the end of this month, April, early May. Actually, WHO inadvertently posted up some of the early studies on that from one of the centres during the week. And um, it, the, the suggestion was it didn't really work. So, when they compared two cohorts of individuals, uh, one treated with the remdesivir and one not treated, it didn't seem to be much of a difference. But again, that was just one of the centres involved in that study. So, it would be interesting to see all of the uh, different data. So, then in terms of new drugs, yeah, so as we learn, because the virus is so new, there's intense research now trying to figure out how this virus actually causes uh, disease especially in terms of causing very severe disease so what seems to happen is that when you're initially infected with the virus so it's obviously infects the respiratory system you produce this initial antiviral response we generate these proteins called interferons and they interfere with the viral replication but then you trigger a little bit of inflammation which is normally a good thing because the inflammation gets rid of the virus but what happens in very severe cases, the inflammation becomes very, very strong and you end up with this exaggerated inflammatory response. And like when you get something inflamed in your skin, you get a little bit of swelling. Well, some of the fluid leaves the blood vessels and leaks out into the tissue. That's what essentially what happens in the lungs. And then the lungs begin, you know, you get this buildup of fluid. So some of the studies now, recent studies have evaluated some anti-inflammatory uh, compounds to see if they work. And again, there's some suggestions that by targeting the inflammation, that could have shown beneficial effects. But it depends when you target, because if you go in too early, you need a little bit of the inflammation to clear the virus, but too much of it is a bad thing. So it's trying to uh, maybe exploit that uh, difference, time difference and maybe go in with new anti inflammatory drugs. So some promise there, Jerry. What about?
1: you know, the scenario where there's a race going on at the moment. This is the way I look at it for the vaccine or a, a new wonder drug. Whoever gets there first, you know yourself, Paul. There's yeah. going to be a lot of rich people, be they the makers, the shareholders or whatever. Yeah. Is that a good thing or, or is my assessment of that correct?
0: It's probably a good thing, Jerry, in the sense that you have, like there are so many trials going on at the moment. Now, most of them probably will fail. That is the reality because the failure rate in trials is really, really, uh, high. I think the, the the good thing is that you have a number of shots and gold then essentially. So you're hoping that at least maybe one of them will work. Because remember this, you really only need one to work either a good antiviral or a good vaccine. And even if the vaccine doesn't work if we get a good uh, so for example, we look at HIV. HIV, we've known that for many, many years, there's no vaccine but the antivirals are very, very good. So at one level it's a really good thing but I think you have to look ahead, and let's say one of the companies come up with a vaccine that works, then you have to look and begin to see everybody in the world will want this vaccine, so who's going to get it uh, and is it only going to be the the rich nations or what about the poorer countries? So to look at that, an organization called CEPI, this is sort of a global alliance between a number of governments and manufacturers. Uh, They've got together and they're supporting the the, uh, trials for maybe four or five of the vaccines. And the intention there is they've already began and built manufacturing plants to produce some of these vaccines in the knowledge that some of them won't work. But that's the price they're going to pay so that if the vaccine works, there's going to be vaccine already produced uh, ready to go. And the hope there is with that global alliance that then there'll be some arrangement, some agreement in place that will allow for equitable sort of distribution of it over over time. So that's the intention. So whether that's the real, of course, you know, other countries in the US at the moment are sort of out of favour and uh, Trump has obviously withdrawn funding from WHO, which is not a good thing. That was a really poor decision in my view. But overall, I think alliances like this, that I think they will be very uh, beneficial in terms of just making sure that everything is fair and every country gets a chance to get access.
1: That's good to hear. You mentioned that man and the U.S. I wonder <laughs> as he shares in debt or Jay's food or something <laughs> like that, Paul. What do you make? And the doc, Deborah, sitting there trying to, yeah. you know, do our best in 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 mitigating what the man said.
0: Yeah, well, those, those comments are reckless, really, Jerry. You know what I? you know, you, you could say actually when you just look and sit back and that it's funny at one level, but it's so serious. And like mm. Some people probably will take that on board and begin to think, you know, very sort of simplicity, simplicity like that. Um, and like, it's not the first time, you know, he said previously with hydroxychloroquine, that's a drug you probably heard about previously, Jerry, and he was sort of advocating uh, its use. And in trials, some of the trials now had to be stopped because of cardiac uh, side effects. So really, in terms of, you should, well, I'm not, I was going to say he yeah, should stick to the politics, but I'm not even sure if you should stick to the politics. <laughs> but certainly, he should, should stay out of medicine and uh, leave that. Yeah. And the, the irony is he's got a fantastic advisor, Anthony Fauci. He's one of the top, uh, the most prestigious um, uh, scientists, clinician scientists in infectious diseases. So really, if I were Trump, I think I should leave it to Fauci.
1: Good advice. I hope he's listening to this today. He'll be chasing me for sure. <laughs> uh, anyway, just mo- just moving on. Um, you know, I s- sent you uh, from Lockdown TV an interesting interview that took place recently with Doctor Johann Gieseke, uh, and a renowned, uh, as you know epidemiologist from Sweden, and he was talking about the Sweden approach. And we've talked on late lunch to Patrick Riley, a local journalist who lives over there in Sweden, and uh, he was telling us, you know, how it's operating quite differently to to here. He questions the lockdown scenario and says that in a year's time, when we come back to this, Sweden will be no different in terms of fatalities uh, per 100,000 or whatever than the rest of the world where the lockdown has happened. What do you say to that?
0: Yes, first of all, Sweden's a little bit of an outlier in that sense. You're absolutely right. So the strategy that they've followed, so basically in terms of trying to suppress the transmission of the virus, there's two approaches that you've probably heard of, but the um, so one is suppression and the other is mitigation. Suppression is trying to get the virus as low as possible, hopefully eventually get to the stage like in China where there's absolutely no new cases. But to get to that stage, you essentially have to go into lockdown like what we are at the moment. Um, the other possibility is to go through mitigation. Mitigation is trying to reduce the spread of the virus, but not too much, so that the virus spreads through the population, and eventually we get to this stage of herd immunity. And the advantage, the theoretical advantage of that, is that you you don't get lockdown, so the effects on the economy are not as uh, damaging, and you do get your herd immunity. But the big problem is, and the UK started to go down this road. And actually, Gasecchi has been sort of critical of the UK in the sense that they started and then they changed their minds. But the reality is that if you go down the road of mitigation, that the surge in the health system is usually such that it absolutely swamps the entire health systems of countries. And you saw that, you began to see that in the UK. You saw that in Italy, even though Italy didn't go down the mitigation approach Uh, strategy, but they had so much infection even before they knew it, it absolutely swamped the health system. So the mitigation approach has posed the big risk of sort of overrunning the entire health system. So in Sweden, Sweden, they sort of have went midway between, they still have you know, uh, and they they encourage social distancing, they haven't gone to full lockdown. But what I hear, Jerry, is that a lot of the, the residents, they are scared as well. So they've sort of imposed their own self-lockdown in a way. Yes. Uh, but if you look at the debt rates per capita and compare it with neighbouring countries like uh, Denmark, uh, Norway, Finland, the debt rates at the moment now in Sweden is probably about between two, three, five times more than its neighbouring countries. Now, Gusecki will basically say that the evaluation can't take place now. It should take place in a year's time and then look at debt rates Um, So now a number of the scientists I know have signed a petition to basically say to try to reverse this and to go into the more strategy, the lockdown strategy that has been adopted by all other countries. But um, time, time will tell, Jerry. time will tell. Yes, time
1: will yeah, tell. that's for sure. And we ain't got time at the moment. And when you look at New Zealand, 5 million people similar to ourselves, just 1,100 cases and 19 deaths. And they really locked down and now they're starting to come out of it. Just yeah. before we finish, the $50 million question, Professor Paul Moyner, today. The government and the health advisors, they are going to announce, it looks like, on Friday, uh, what yeah. the plan is or the path forward. It looks like, There may be very minimal uh, releasing of of, uh, certain aspects of society, but really, really minuscule. Looking like another fortnight at least, Paul.
0: I think it's probably going to look like another couple of weeks. I said early on, Jerry, it's probably going to be sort of around the end of May. We'll probably still stick with that. I think the the challenge for the government is that even if you look at the WHO, the WHO, they give guidance and they give guidance to all countries, up to countries whether they want to adopt that or not but they specified six conditions that a country should really meet before it thinks about exiting uh, lockdown. Some of them, it's very difficult for us to meet them at the moment. So for example, they say that we must be in a situation where we can basically detect and trace every uh, positive individual. And I've said previously that we're probably only picking up one in 10. So certainly we're not close to that. So I think the whole discussion around testing, which I've spoken about a number of times, I think we need to probably get our testing Not only in terms of scale, but the speed of testing. We need absolutely to get to the stage where, when you go for a test, you need the result within 24 hours, ideally. At the very latest, 48 hours. Because our numbers for testing, Jerry, are quite good internationally. You look at the numbers we test per million or per 100,000. It's really good. But that testing serves absolutely no purpose if it's not done quickly. So you you can have really high test numbers, but if it's taking seven to 10 days to return a test result. You miss all the primary contacts, you miss the secondary contacts, and so on. So it's not effective at all. Now, that's not maybe such a big problem in lockdown because most of our contacts are households. But you think now we begin to lift restrictions, people begin to interact with each other more. It's absolutely important then that the testing is what we would describe as real time. It needs to be done within one to two days. And until we get to that stage, I think it's going to be difficult, Jerry, to completely exit from where we are at the moment.